feeling of how we limit ourselves. It's, it's, it's like, just set the limit aside. There's something so intense when you realize that it's your own mind telling you, you can't do stuff, just do it. Uh, You know, I think it's sometimes a matter of just, you know, if you want to draw, yeah, you could sign up and take a drawing class at your local community college or wherever. And and that's great. Do that too. You could also just get a little pad of paper and a black pen, a red pen and a blue pen. And every night before you went to bed, you could draw little line drawings. They, they can be so magical. And so I, I, I would say like use, use painting like a journal, use drawing like a, like a, uh, improv group, um, you know, use cooking like a, like a class in, in improv quilting. Like it's all just using these fantastic things that at our, that are at our service, whether it's, um, you know, things to bake with or things to quilt with or colors of paint. And, and I think people get so hung up on the product, you know, they get so hung up on what does it look like and what will other people say? And I would say, Keep it to yourself and just go for it. Welcome to the Art and Life podcast with your host, Taylor Gallegos. Art exists all around us, in all directions, from all walks of life. We just need to know how to see it. The Art and Life podcast is an experiment in an audio format that focuses on the art and philosophy involved with different people and their life paths. This experiment is intended to inspire you in your creative pursuits, whatever they may be. Follow along as I interview movers and shakers from all walks of life. It's possible to make a life from your art, skill, craft, or vision. These interviews showcase that fact. Listen while you work, listen while you create, listen while you dream up the next big breakthrough. First off, I want to say thank you for listening. The people being interviewed and I are two parts of the podcast, but it wouldn't be complete without you, the listener. I very much appreciate your attention and your energy, and I hope you get as much out of this as I do. If you enjoy what you hear, you can join me on this artistic journey in many ways. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review, and share it around. You can join the conversation on the Art and Life Facebook group, where we discuss topics from the shows. You can join my email list on my website at taylorgallegosart.com on the contact page. And while you're there, check out the new artwork I've been creating. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at taylorgallegosart. And finally, you can support my art and the Art and Life podcast on my Patreon page. Just search Taylor Gallegos Art. So again, a deep and sincere thank you for being here. Now, on to the good stuff. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. I am your host, Taylor Gallegos, and with me today is a very special guest. This person I've known for a long time and has known me for a long time. 
And uh, it's always really cool how people's sort of orbits connect at different times uh, through space and time. So uh, very happy to have this guest on. Diane Hollett, thanks for being here. Thank you, Taylor. I'm excited. It's, um, I've known Taylor's mom for, you know, 30 years. So this is a treat. Yeah. Yeah. You've <clears throat> known me since I was a very small one. It's cool. Um, all right. Well, let's just dive in. Uh, why don't you tell everybody but who you are, where you're from, how you got to where you're at, and what it is that you're doing with your life? <laughs> Good question. Well, um, you know, I, I often say I was born in Michigan. And I still find that when people ask me where I'm from, I feel like I'm from Michigan, but I live in Boulder, Colorado, but that Midwestern uh, landscape and people really shaped me. Um, but I live in Boulder, Colorado. And after uh, 30 years of teaching and various kinds of facilitating, I found myself starting this whole new, you know, service, I think I would almost call it more than a business. And it's about uh, end of life education, mortality education, about how really looking the end of life in the eye impacts and inspires how we live. And that there's almost no greater gift than being so present in how you live because you're so clear that this is a gift that won't last. And um, so I started out, uh, coming out to the University of Colorado and going to there for an English major, and then eventually working my way to California where I got a master's in education, taught some middle school, taught some high school, did some parent education, adopted two kids later in life. So became an older, obviously much wiser mom by doing that. Mm -hmm. And um, here I am. Yeah. Where did you uh, get your master's in California? I went through the Stanford teacher education program, which was a really interesting one-year program um, during which you did all your student teaching, all your coursework and got a master's. Wow. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. That's the way to do it. It was great. Yeah. I've uh, been lucky enough to know a handful of Stanford graduates and there's some high level human beings there. Very high level human beings. I always felt like I really found my tribe when I got to grad school. You know, then th those were people who really wanted to talk about education and think about the classroom and how they could impact people. Yeah. Yeah. And probably talk about it and think about it in a whole new way. Yeah. You maybe were exposed to before. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was really something. I also, while I was there, um, delved into something called the painting experience with a teacher named Michelle Cassou. And that was really a huge outpouring of a creative time for me. And we've got to talk about that too. Yeah. The painting experience? The painting experience. Um, it's a studio, or at that time was a studio in San Francisco that uh, really used paint as a tool for self-expression. So not about product, not about creating reality, not, you know, not about painting what you could see, but painting from feeling and seeing what happened on the page. And really, really, ultimately, I really consider that work an active meditation. It's like you happen to be putting paint on the page, but you're really watching your own train of thoughts as you put paint on the page and have a lot of commentary about that. So it happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, Yeah me being a painter i get to hear from so many people all the time about like oh i don't know like people talk to me about their 
their feelings that they have when about painting or them painting and so much of it is uh kind of self-deprecating or you know like a lot of negative talk towards oneself it's so intense i mean i sometimes i found the painting experience is really this it's really this seminal interesting thing to talk about um because i feel like it was for me almost like recapturing what it was like to paint as a little kid like just absolute freedom complete space but how much judgment we have externally and how much expectation we have about how we want it to be. And, you know, those of us who would do painting workshops with Michelle Cassou would often joke, we'd, you know, you'd start a painting and you'd be like, oh, this one's going to be a great one. And then it was like, just let that go. Do you want the experience or do you want some piece of paper? Michelle yeah. would call it the miserable piece of paper. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that yeah, was I mean, pretty profound. It's funny how you can start like in a, in a painting, you can start going in a direction and then all of a sudden there's all these other things that come that get stacked on because your things are either going well or they're not going well. And then you start to like paint this picture of the future and it's almost like, and, and the future doesn't even naturally have to happen that way or yeah. ever. It's like- uh, Yeah, it's just this evolution. And, and I think when we see, like I, I'm stunned by how many people stop themselves from creating because of how concerned they are about the product. Yeah. And I just, that process painting work just taught me like it to almost like to just open this tap inside me and just go and like not worry about it and not be so um, caught up in it. And, you know, it's at the big level of sort of like, do I like this painting? But it's also at this minute level, like, oh, I think I should put blue there. Oh, I shouldn't have put blue there. Oh, I hate the blue. Why did I put blue? And it's like, well, what if the blue just is and you're not second guessing yourself constantly? So I found that to be really a powerful mental kind of mental, emotional, spiritual training that was about just being with what came off the brush and not um, not taking myself so seriously, not taking the painting so seriously. And, you know, if, if you paint in that way, you're bound to kind of paint some archetypal things. I mean, almost everyone I knew would end up doing a self-portrait at some point or several self-portraits. Yeah. You know, and I remember one time a, a woman in a workshop saying to Michelle, you know, why does everyone's painting look the same? And Michelle said, she was so sweet. And she said, well, you know, there aren't really that many things in the world that are interesting to paint. So of course you're going to paint people, you know, and people, you know. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I mean, maybe it speaks to uh, the similarities too that all of us have and that our, uh, our internal landscape, psychologically, philosophically, emotionally is actually like really similar. More similar than different a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the spot where we all connect is that like we all deal with the human experience and we all you know, and then like our emotions are sort of broken down into like positive and negative, And those are, can be broken down into categories. And it's like, all these things are like, we all go through them, whether you're, no matter right. where you live, where, how old you are or whatever. Right. And those basic, like those basic longings for like a sense of belonging, a sense of being needed, a sense of being seen. Yeah. They just, they cut across everything. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So what, what was interesting to me in part was that I kind of started, I alluded to this, but I really started um, as a huge reader and huge writer and did a ton of that in high school and college. 
And then I kind of moved into this phase of doing a ton of painting, like just, I mean, I have, you know, pages and pages of paintings that are, I, I don't display. I don't, I, you know, I haven't done anything with them because I don't know, that just wasn't why I did them. Um, and then I switched, found myself quite surprisingly switching to sewing. This was like such a shift to me. Like if you had said, you know, oh yeah, Diana, you know, 40, you're going to start sewing. I would have been like, yeah, right. No way. Like everyone I always saw who quilted and sewed, it looked very, um, you know, persnickety and precise and like the exact opposite of how I tend to move. And then I started working with a friend who just did incredible improv and um, wow, suddenly I was sewing. So that's, so I've, I've moved from improv writing. sewing. Improv sewing. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So like, I hardly ever make a quilt that I know ahead of time what it's going to be like, you know, I just kind of start making blocks and then they get bigger and then the whole thing gets bigger. And then I go, Oh, that looks like a nice size. And there it is. So that's, that's all kind of creative stuff, but I, I appreciate how much you are bringing forward in your own life and your own painting work. And through the podcast, you're bringing forward this conversation about creativity. Because I think it's, for me, it's just a life force. It's just a sustaining thing. And I'm, I'm always kind of stunned by um, when I meet someone who doesn't have that in some way, even if it's small in some way. And some people kind of don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it feels like uh, it's such a natural thing for us to just be. And like the type of painting that you're talking about, that's like an act of uh, just shutting off your mind, which is has all these like blockers in the way of anything progressing. It's almost like your mind has this like bureaucracy. Totally. Creativity has to pass, pass through. And when, uh, when you can just like shut down the bureaucratic element and then let the creativity flow, it's like everybody has that. Every, like even the people that we think don't have it, they just have a very strong bureaucratic setup in their mind. That is so true. That is so true. And we always set up workshops with Michelle and Michelle is still teaching um, at Esalen and uh, Taos, New Mexico and some amazing places. And um, she, uh, we would always set it up that in the workshop, the request and the norm was nobody makes any comments on anybody else's paintings. And it was incredible what that would do in the course of a week, um, because it's pretty obvious why a negative comment would be, you know, a problem and hurtful and shut people down. But positive comments do too. You know, somebody saying, "Oh, I just love the way you put the dragon in the corner." Well, now I think I've got to put dragons everywhere. You know, it just it was really interesting because that those external comments just mirror the bureaucracy that we have going on all the time ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And they get in the way. They block stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of a bureaucracy. I see these like, you know, bureaucrats stamping forms to get approval to put the image on the page when yeah. Yeah. just put the image, just little, put the little image. like gates yeah. and rooms that you have to like get through and you got to go up to the like checkpoint guy and they check your yeah. little, like creativity passport and they right. either put it through or they don't. And right. some people get held up in creativity customs. <laughs> <laughs> Their baggage stuck forever. That's right. <laughs> we got to break these people out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's get you talking on um, what you're doing now. 
Sure. I was just, I was just sort of feeling into, there's some similarity there that I'll, I'll figure out. There's some similarity between creativity and the bureaucracy and mortality. And I think it has to do with how much we set up bureaucracies for our experience. And we just, we have a whole lot of notions about how it should go. And um, there's a whole lot that can happen when we get out of our own way. Obviously, I'm not inventing this. I'm just repeating what many others have said more eloquently. But uh, it's very powerful, very powerful. And I think a lot of the voices of the bureaucracy that kind of say, you shouldn't, you couldn't, you can't, those are the same kind of things that stop us from doing what we really want to do and what we love in our lives. And I think one of the biggest (laughs) kind of comments we make on ourselves is something about, um, well, there's a lot, but I was trying to link it to the, to the end, which is sort of this will end. So you can't do stuff. And there's a way to completely flip that and say, this will end. So let's get going. Yeah. 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 It's uh, and the thought that comes to mind, my mind about that is that we are existing in these bureaucracies of how things are supposed to be that were created by people from the past living in a culture that doesn't exist anymore. That was passed right. down to them from a culture that wasn't, that doesn't exist anymore. Right. And there's definitely value in cultural norms and things, but there's also a bunch of horse hockey that could be tossed out the window and um, like reinvented. Well, it really gets in our way of embracing what's in front of us. Um, And I think ultimately that's what the work I'm doing now is about. It's, it's, um, well, maybe I'll back up. Let me back up. up. I'll back up and I'll say, there I was trundling along at 40 years old and my husband and I decided to adopt a child and then another child. So I was busy in my 40s raising young kids. And that was amazing. And all, all the good things that parenting can and should be good things and hard things. And then as my kids got to a new stage, and my uh, one child was going to be going to a middle school that was much closer, the other child had her driver's license and was now driving, I thought, okay, I have a little more time here. And what had always been um, knocking at the door of my heart was end of life work. And I thought, well, what is this going to look like? You know, am I going to get a master's? Am I going to go back in geri- geriatrics or um, hospice? Or is there some calling there? And a friend told me about a course through the Conscious Dying Institute. And when she started to speak of it, I mean, I just signed up. I just, it was like, that was it. I'm going to absolutely do that. And that was called Sacred Passage Doula. And the Sacred Passage Doula course was about um, becoming a death doula and really stepping into that role. And I think back and I, I reflect back and I think, you know, a hundred years ago in, in our Western U.S. culture and many other cultures, somebody in a family knew how to handle end of life. People died at home. Funerals were all home funerals. You know, it was often women's work. It was often an aunt or a mother or a grandmother or someone in the village showed up at the house and guided people through that transition. 
guided both the dying person and the living remaining people. And all of that really shifted. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff you can read about how it shifted, but a big piece was the Civil War. A big piece was Lincoln being embalmed and put on a train and taken around the country. And the idea that embalmed soldier bodies could travel back to their hometown. And suddenly this whole uh, enterprise was born that the funeral industry really has its roots in the Civil War. So here we are today, some of us not wanting what previous generations have done. And I think right now is this uh, kind of incredible time in the US and other countries of this um, it's not new. I wouldn't want to call it new, but it's like an emergence of a stronger voice of a positive death movement. And there are so many powerful people working in this area. Um, Taryn Estes of the Conscious Dying Institute, Alua Arthur of a, a organization called Going with Grace. Uh, Caitlin Dowdy is a mortician and amazing YouTube and podcast person. She has a YouTube channel called Ask a Mortician. She's out of LA and she's just remarkable. I mean, she's just such a um, disruptor in the best sense of the word. So I think that there is a lot of interest in this and a lot of uh, relief for people when they realize there are alternatives to how some of this has been handled. And I, I always try to, you know, be really generous with my assumptions because there are families there are communities, there are places that handle death in a really direct, beautiful, um, embracing way. And then there are some that just are a bit lost and um, lost with how to come upon mortality, lost with how to die, lost with what to do when someone has died. I mean, there are all these different facets of this conversation, all of which are interesting. So what I am doing with the work that I've stepped into with Best Life, Best Death is the name of my work. And I'm trying to create conversations. So these are conversations that are sort of ostensibly about end of life. But remarkably, as we know, when we reflect on that, it has a big impact on how we are living. So is it about death? Is it about end of life? Yes, but it's also very much about priorities and choices and loose ends. And many people are motivated by not wanting to leave a mess, quote unquote, when they die. So that's a big motivator to kind of say, well, anything could happen at any time. What, what do I as an individual need to do to dot the I's and cross the T's so that if something, God forbid, happens, it'll be okay. It won't be a complete mess for people I, that I leave behind. And um, so that work has led me to teach courses called Best Three Months, in which we take a look at that really directly. So at the beginning of the class, we state the date of the death that will be coming to everyone in the class, three months, 90 days from when the class starts. And then we talk through five different domains of people's lives. What I love about the conversation is, number one, it's obviously very personal and personalized. So this is about you having a conversation with yourself, ultimately. Number two, it's very action-oriented. It's really about coming up with concrete steps that you want to take, that you need to take. And what I find is it's so interesting. We can all talk big, talk, 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 big talk about what we need to do and should do. How do you actually land it and say, 
I really am going to get three attorney names and call them and get a will. Basic, basic things that we all know we should do. We know it's important, but it always gets put off. And, and the paperwork is the least of it. Um, so I appreciate the, the personalness of the conversations, and I appreciate the action inherent in the conversations. So the five domains that we talk about are, number one, physical domain. How do you want to be cared for physically? What do you like physically? What makes you uncomfortable? It's fascinating how many people can articulate that but have never told anybody. So their loved ones wouldn't necessarily know. Uh, We talk about the spiritual world. That is a wide range of what people believe and want. But the question is, what's real for you? And what do you want at the end of life? Say you couldn't speak anymore. Would anybody know what it is you want? Third, we talk about the emotional domain. And that, that often is about, it's not so much you know, go back over your entire life and wrestle with every emotional thing. It's more like the loose end thing. Really, is there a loose end that's a problem? If you were to die in 90 days that you would wish you had done differently or taken some step in. The fourth area we talk about is life legacy. And this has to do with, it sounds sort of big and ominous, but it really is sort of, is there any project that you want to leave behind um, I talked earlier about quilting. And for me, there's a definitely kind of a pull to like, I have a few more quilts. I want to make a few beloved people. And if I had 90 days to live, I would finish those quilts. And then finally, we spend time talking about the practical after death care. What do you want to have happen to your body? And what kind of ceremony do you envision? I just saw a fabulous article about somebody who had her friends put on a water ballet instead of a traditional service. So <laughs> these, these friends, you know, 50 people all coordinated this incredible water ballet display in, in a pool in a park. Really exquisite. So there's a lot of creativity there. There's a lot of possibility. Um, what I find is the best three months tool, this process of talking through these five domains, really puts people in touch with what they want, and then they can articulate what their vision is. And, but then they have some action steps to really put it into place. And I think that's a, just a fantastic thing. So I hear from people after classes about what they've done and they're just, you know, they're just over the moon because they got some things done that were important to them. Yeah. <clears throat> and with those things all taken care of, then it leads to more of just like a free flow life because you're like, okay, in the event that that happens, I'm covered in all directions. It really reminds me of like, um, like a will is like a sort of just the very minimum basic, but then this is like more like a will for your whole emotional, mental, spiritual being. And much like wills, you can write one on your deathbed or you can write one today and it'll just be there good to go and so you don't need to worry about it again you don't have to go see a lawyer when you're not in the right like right place to do it it's like it's like doing your homework and then just being like ready for the big exam whenever it comes exactly and I think it's amazing how much when people start to move some of these things off their plate I think they're they're amazed by how much lighter they get in little areas um you know, so many anecdotes pop to mind. I think of one woman who 
you know, she just really felt she needed to move something with her sister. And she knew that and it was bugging her, but it wasn't really until she looked at this end of life in 90 days that she said, okay, I really have to do something. And then sometimes those kind of actions can feel really big. And she was able to break it down and say, well, first, I'm just going to send her an email and just kind of check in. And then I'm going to see where that goes. But it was a first step that she hadn't quite been able to get her head around. Um, You know, another person, they got very excited about um, actually writing some things down for their kids and grandkids. And it, it became clear to her that she didn't have to do her entire life as this giant narrative, which had always seemed too overwhelming. She, she got kind of freed up and she thought, oh, I can just write these very anecdotal specific memories and little bits of advice interspersed. And she got very creative with how she wanted this book to go. So it wasn't some kind of life book that was a, I was born on this day and da da da, da but rather it was really this living embodiment of her creativity as a legacy to give to her kids. So, you know, the simple things are organizing pictures and purging closets, but there's a whole lot more interesting stuff. And sometimes really, I, I said to one class, I said, you know, I don't know if I have 90 days to live, somebody else will figure out my books and closets and clothes. I don't care about that. What I want to do is finish these two quilts and write some letters to my kids. Like that's what matters. So I think it's really about coming down with what matters. Totally. And uh, so I read this book recently that's made a big impact on me called The One Thing. And The One Thing, it's like, it's all about distilling your focus and your energy into the thing that really lights you up and putting all your energy there and just moving forward. And then everything else can kind of figure itself out or you can figure it out or hand it off or whatever. And um, and it creates this like roadmap for you. So then every day when you wake up, you know where you're going, or at least, you know, like, you know, and you, with a, with a destination or at least a direction, you can easily back architect like little steps that you can do little things that you can do. And so this is sort of like doing exactly the same thing in all your five areas. And then, you know, like that having the realization of like, okay, 90 days, what would I want to get done? You know, that's a huge question to ask, like ask myself, like what, like in terms of my art, what would I, if I had 90 days, what would I do? And that's it. That's it. Right. Huge. Yeah. That's really, I'm trying to pull up a calendar and figure out what that date would be. Oh, (laughs) what are we almost September, (laughs) December? (laughs) Wow. December 29th. It's, it's really powerful. I find it really interesting. Um, I, I've done several of these classes on Zoom now, which is actually an incredible format for this. I'm loving doing stuff on Zoom because I've had people coast to coast and, it, you know, people just call in with a cup of tea from their living room. I mean, I'm not sure that anybody's really going to drive across town at this point to go to a class. Like there's just, that's where Zoom has been a real, a real beauty and benefit and open things up. But um, I lost my train of thought. Um, um, um. Well, I've got a, a thought. For Hold you. that thought. Okay. Shoot. Thought shoot, was, shoot, shoot. It was a good one. Wait, I was going to say <laughs> that. Um, it'll come back. Okay. Uh, driving across. Place it in. Zoom. That's all right. Yeah. That's okay. So I listened to this podcast the other day. Uh, I was cruising around, like doing a painting, looking for something to listen to. And I saw on Radio Lab there was a story about 
um, the Queen of Death is what the the title was, and it was about Elizabeth Kubler Ross, and yeah. it was so interesting to me. I mean, first off, like the coincidental timing of me looking for that podcast and then coming into this one, but uh, it was really interesting learning about her and uh, talking about you know how different cultures handle things like before her in the United States in like the 40s and 50s they really didn't want like in in hospitals they didn't want to address death at all like they weren't even telling patients that they were about to die if they were because they wanted everyone to just like keep their chin up and just stay positive and like hey by the way family this person has a stage four cancer and they're gonna die in two days hey feeling good great keep going like incredible right incredible the cultural denial yeah denial it's massive cultural denial or a cultural denial yeah 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 and then she uh it sounds like she really like faced towards that um and then she ended up living and like teaching all that and then she in her dying process Uh, she really like fell apart in a lot of ways and was like very angry about things and whatever but like she was living the five stages of death that she talked about and uh, people were kind of like uh, judgmental of her but she was doing exactly what she was saying everybody should feel free to do which is like one of the stages is anger one of the stages is grief and like all these things like uh it was really really cool i highly recommend it she that sounds amazing i think she really paved the way for what's happening now and you know this kind of current positive death movement definitely rides on her work and i think she was a huge piece of the hospice movement which is of course you know just amazing i i think that you know just to speak slightly to the difference between hospice and and end of life doulas because i think it's kind of interesting because i think at its best and the best hospice people, and there are so many of them, they really act as end-of-life doulas. That is what they're doing, is playing that supportive role. Um, but but on a basic level, I think hospice is medical-based, and doulas are much more simply compassionate care-based. So a family that hires a death doula to work with them is really like bringing in that village elder to support them in their grief and in this transition for everybody. It's just a little different than hospice. It's very complementary to hospice. Um, Because as I understand it, and this may vary widely from state to state and place to place, but I think um, I just talked to a friend who's um, lost a loved one up in uh, the Seattle area and they you know, hospice came sort of two afternoons a week for an hour and a half. I mean, it was so limited. And there they were, you know, a a small cadre of family with the dying father, and they they felt very helpless about how to get support and what to do. And so they really relied on the hospice person, as so many of us do. But wow, for families who can find volunteer or or, um, the service of a death doula, they, they can have more of that companionship and compassionate care and education so they know what's happening. Yeah, and helping everybody deal with it. I mean, yeah. talk about a universal experience. Like death is like the most universal, like no matter yeah. where you're from, whatever, no matter what species you are, like yeah. we yeah. experience the end. And yeah. uh, I mean, every single thing that has lived on this planet 
has or will die. And I think, I think you can kind of even say there's only two kinds of death. There's sudden death. Actually, there's three kinds I can think of. There's sudden death. You die of something, an accident, a heart attack. Suicide is a sudden death, quick things. Um, then there's death from disease, and that can be long and have ups and downs and plateaus. And then there's death from old age and frailty and end of life. And they're, they're all, they all have different challenges for the person who's dying and for the family and friends that remain. And they're different challenges, interestingly enough. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah, because they're completely different emotions. Like you go to a funeral of someone who died young and it's got a completely different vibe from, yeah. you know, grandparents who got old. Yep. Yeah. It's been, and we've it's been, all, we've all experienced, you know, I, I think, I think many people have experienced difficult deaths and positive deaths yeah. and difficult funeral type services and positive funeral type ceremony services. And so I, I always think, you know, how do we build on that as a culture, as a family, how, you know, what do I want to see for my immediate family, siblings, et cetera, or what do I hope for myself? And um, there's a very powerful writer named Stephen Jenkinson, who's written some just stunning books. They're very dense. I, I often say I don't really recommend them unless you really like a dense read, but his um, tome is called Die Wise. And he, he flat out says, Dying wise is a is an act of love. Dying wise is the last great act of a married life. Dying wise is the last thing you'll leave your children. And everything else will be sold at yard sales, given away, um, you know, taken by the bank, taken by the government. So the really, really what you have is how did you die and how does that impact the survivors? Because it has a huge impact on what your family and children and spouses and loved ones and partners come to see as death. Right. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. It's like a part of what you leave behind. Um, yeah, because, so that, because that experience can really bring people together or it can really separate people. Yeah. And sometimes what you leave in place adds to that. Oh, gosh, another anecdote was someone who told me that her, her family um, parents had divorced, both had remarried, and both multiple kids, and both parents had died within a year of each other, neither with wills. Guess how big of a mess that was for everyone to sort out. I mean, just, just you're talking years of attorney fees, you know, just to kind of wade through because neither of them wanted to acknowledge that it was happening. Yeah, like, are you? Do you want your family to get along peacefully after you go, or do you want them to like be getting at each other for? Oh my God, that's that's awful. Yeah, she she said, you know, it was just it was just difficult. It was so difficult emotionally, and it was so difficult on a practical level. There was just so much to go through and sort out, and nobody was happy. I mean, that's sort of like the most difficult of human experiences. And, and I, I, it saddens me to think that, that sometimes the, the way that we sometimes do this, I, I would even say the way that we sometimes choose to do this, um, adds so much on top of what is already a difficult time. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's difficult to have somebody that you love die is, is just, you know, a huge difficulty, but then it can be layers and layers of difficulty on top of that, depending on what we've planned for. Yeah, totally. 
And I like that what you, the word that you used was they refused to acknowledge mm -hmm. that they were going to die. And it's like, again, it's the most inevitable thing of anything. And right. to not acknowledge it is like, uh, you know, it's denial, it's running from a truth. It's like not wanting to face the music and not being prepared, not preparing anybody else. So oh, we're scared, you know, we're scared. And we, um, we haven't always had elders who said this is going to be okay. And this is human, you know, this is being human. Yeah. I actually have a great, um, uh, one of my, one of my touchstones, one of my touch points in my life was actually from your grandmother's funeral. And um, I will never forget, I don't remember who the speaker was, but I remember the story. And the story was that Dottie loved good food. And Dottie would always, she was so positive. And so no matter what hamburger she would eat, she would eat, Dottie would say, that was the best darn hamburger I've ever had. And that was just her phrase. And that was her expression of love and life. And um, I, there was a way in which she really took everything in and lived in that, that very moment and embraced that hamburger right in front of her. And I think of that as such a fabulous metaphor. I think I want to be like Dottie when I'm 80, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was like a, a, I don't know, like a mindset, a positioning, a mindset. Took, Absolutely. Uh, that everything, her, her keyword was divine everything divine. is divine like <laughs> that hamburger was divine and, and it was and it's, it's really interesting like contemplating her and her and that mindset and um really like it's a it's a attitude of gratitude completely and, and what that left her kids and her grandkids and then me like friend who showed up at the funeral i mean i probably think of that twice a week <laughs> Oh, so it's like the ripple effects of our lives are big. So what do we want those ripples to be? You know, do we want the ripples to be chaos and confusion and anger and, and frustration? Or do we want it to be the, the divine experience of the present moment that's sharing with others and, um, you know, getting through the hard stuff? Not that Dottie didn't have hard stuff, but she just, she took in the good and shared it really. Yeah. And she like hung on to that. Like that's yeah. what she chose to, you know, it's all, there's like good and bad and whatever, but she like chose to like focus her energy on that. Yeah. She didn't say, why aren't these pickles crunchy or the burger, the, you know, the fries are too soggy. She didn't say that. <laughs> never, never. She would just put the fries aside and then say that the waiter was so nice or whatever. <laughs> I love that. I love that because I think, I think as we age, we get a little bit more like who we already are, right? So I look at that now and I say, well, what's my mindset in my 50s? You know, because whatever mindset it is, is probably what I'm taking into my 80s. So yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and it's such a it's a choice. Like we we get to, I mean, there are patterning elements of our lives and our psyche and and our everything, but um I think that's the difference between when we're a child and when we're older, we're still the same core person with the same elements there. But when we're older, we have the option to, to be self-aware in a way that a child doesn't. Yeah. And then we can evaluate our decisions, our effects on the world, the way that we react to things. And then 
from there choose to uh, choose to or not to yeah. uh, acknowledge them and, and work through them. That's a really cool thing about what you're doing is there's like, there's the, uh, you know, getting things taken care of element, but then there's like the psychological dive and uh, psychological, spiritual, philosophical, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's where it's like, I mean, death is like you, when you get pushed to the edge of oblivion, that's when everything really comes into focus. Like all the, the big stuff, the little, little stuff fades away. And like the big picture questions are really staring you in the face. Right. I mean, it's kind of an old cliche, but I, but I love to, I love to be reminded of it, you know, that nobody on their deathbed ever said, I wish I'd made more money, you know, or I wish I'd, you know, climbed that corporate ladder higher, or I wish I, you know, even, even travel, people don't lie on their deathbed and say, I wish I'd climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I don't think most people, most people say, you know, I wish I lived closer to my kids, or I wish I had another conversation with my loved one or, you know, they, they, they talk about friends, they talk about family, they talk about relationships. That's, that's what it boils down to. So what are we doing now to cultivate those? Because um, I, I think there's a lot that we get hooked into in the material world that isn't, isn't, isn't kind of of our essence importance. Big time. All the time, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I just heard a podcast that I loved and I, um, I believe it, well, I know it's on Sounds True and I believe it's with Michael Singer and it's called What Happens Between When You're Born and When You Die. I may have to go back and get that accurate name, but I think that's it. And um, I love, I just loved it. He didn't, he didn't say anything, you know, new that hadn't been said before, but he said it in such a succinct, beautiful way. And what he said is he, he said, look, you're born, you have experiences and you die. And while you're having those experiences, you can either hang on to them or let them go or anticipate them. Like those are really your three options. You can look back, you can be in the moment, you can look forward. And he said, so that's it. There you go. That's what you're doing. You're having experiences. And he said, you know, you'll, you'll probably find, I don't think he said it like this. This is me. You'll probably find the most joy in not hanging on to every experience. Just be in the one you're in. And um, so that that was really moving to me. Well, and if you're going to place your energy in one of those three, uh, then you're going to be out of balance. Really, mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me the, the, the Libra in me would say, let's find a balance between everything and, you know, spend a third of our time in the present, a third of our time planning ahead and a third of our time looking back. Or, or maybe ha go heavier in the present moment. Yeah. And, uh, and then 20, 20, 60. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then you're, then you're giving everything proper respect. Cause if you, you can't not look ahead and you also to not look back, it feels like it's. Um, and you don't learn too. Right. Yeah. But it's the things that we kind of hang on to and let fester. I think those slow people down and the things that we anticipate so much that we're not with where we are, those slow us down. Yeah. I'm always sort of looking at what's the, what's the efficiency, you know, what's the interesting, efficient path. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny uh, that you say that because I was thinking about hanging on to the past and it just like, even just thinking about it, 
feels like so much energy <laughs> it's like it's an anchor isn't it it's just whoa oh yeah you're trying and if you try to hang on to all these things that have happened there's like billions of things that happen all the time like to hang on to all these things it's just like it's like wearing a huge weight jacket that's like just pulling you down yeah even if they're positive yeah 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 uh, okay we're gonna switch directions into our question section of part one ready ready okay uh i'm looking at the wrong questions <laughs> Hang one second here there are no wrong questions grasshopper oh yeah thank you perfect okay that's right and as you say that i found my not wrong questions that was like, <laughs> okay what was your breakthrough moment when uh we'll go for this breakthrough into this world like what what was uh the the moment or the catalyst that took you from thinking about this and then took you uh, into it. And also uh, you didn't explain, you didn't mention why you always thought about this. You said you mm -hmm. did always think about it, but I don't always think yeah, about sure. it. I don't think everyone does. What, why, why did you? Okay, wait, two different things. Why, why this? And what was the other one? Uh, what the breakthrough, breakthrough, what the catalyst was. Catalyst for best life, best death. Yeah. Well, one friend of mine jokes around with me, she's like, you just don't have that much baggage around death, you know, and, and that's sort of how I feel. I haven't had a lot of trauma around death. My parents are both still living. That, I think that's a game changer for people. And I fully expect that to be a game changer for me, because I know that that's just a transition where you feel completely different in the world when your parents are not ahead of you. Um, so, so part of it for me is having had a family that was really practical and talked about death, talked about money, talked about sex, talked about three big things you can't talk about, you know, there was just conversation. And so I never felt it was this hidden thing or this taboo subject. It just seemed really um, like it needed to be on the table. And then I had several friends um, over the years who've gotten cancer and died and um, all of them, I felt really clear that I was um, drawn to be with them, content to be with them, not scared of being with them in a way that I would be intrigued that not everyone in our community would do. You know, not everybody said, oh, sure, I'd be happy to go sit with this person in these last weeks. And, and I always kind of signed up for that. I just felt like it was the right thing to do. I mean, not always, not always when my kids were little, was there space or time to do it, but I, I didn't feel an aversion to it. I felt the opposite. I felt drawn, like this is this powerful transition. This is this huge moment for any being. And I wanted to be present. So um, I think a big aha for me was, let me start that over. I, I think an aha moment for me was when I realized there were so many different facets to this end of life work. And that when I did the sacred passage doula training, there was this feeling of how that opened my capacity to sit with people at the end, which, which, as I've said, I already had this kind of a draw to, but then there was this realization that this is also about education. This is about conversation. And that was really the word that just turned it for me. I thought, oh, I, I want to have conversations. I mean, I love talking to people. I love talking to people one-on-one -on -one or in small groups or in bigger groups. I'm, I'm kind of a funny person. Like 
my husband and I've joked around, like, you could say to me, Diane, you're going to go for 30 days to a cabin by yourself. And I'd go, great. Or you could say, Diane, you're going to give a lecture on a panel in front of 200 people tomorrow. And I'd go, great. And like, not everybody has that range of willingness to sort of be alone or be with all sizes of groups of people. But I've always had an appreciation for that. So when I realized there was this education component that had to do with dialogue and conversation, that there were so many resources that honestly, anybody could access most of the things I offered in my classes online. But to go through that experience in a small group that becomes very intimate and be you know shown a video and then have a discussion about the video it's just different than sitting at your desk by yourself watching some video and so this the feeling that i could drop into that niche got me really excited and so um, another course i took was the conscious dying educator course and honestly i was so oblivious you know how sometimes things are like right in front of your face and so you don't see them mm -hmm. i i was i was kind of ambivalent about whether i wanted to take that class or not and then a friend said, what are you talking about? Like, this is exactly what you should take this next class and see what that step is like. And I thought, oh, you're right. I love to teach. I love groups. I love conversations. Oh, wait, I think I do want to do this education piece. Once I took that class, then it was like a door just opened in terms of moving and stepping into this work. Because I can tell you a year ago, I was like, oh, I don't want a website. I don't want a business. I don't want to create some big thing out of this. I don't want to be on a podcast. Who would do that? And all of a sudden, three months later, I was just on fire, just thinking, oh yeah, this is, this is exactly what I see myself doing for, I don't know, until I stopped doing it, 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, this is like, I'm at the early stage of this life experience for people who age. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, that's exciting. Um, all right. Next question is your favorite flow state moment that comes to mind. And so flow state is the zone or being in the flow. Um, lots of people experience it in different ways. Everybody experiences it in their own way. Um, yeah. What's yours? I had a great moment back when I was in the middle of a painting workshop, um, which I spoke of earlier with Michelle Cassu in San Francisco. And I was painting away, putting little tiny lines on, on a painting, like little tiny details. And I was just quietly in it. And the woman on my left started to sob. She just started to cry and kind of quietly, but, but sobbing. And the woman on my right started to kind of giggle as she was painting. And I thought, there it is. Like I was right there, just totally content. And, and I didn't need to do anything for either of them. You know, they were both absolutely where they needed to be. And so there was this sensation of just sitting in human experience, putting paint on a page, just quietly absorbing laughter and tears. Yeah, <laughs> totally in the zone. <laughs> That's wild. Um, that's like yeah. a zone that included other people <laughs> yeah, what an interesting moment it's like I was just thinking as I was telling you the zone thing that uh, sometimes the zone can feel like a dream mm -hmm. and uh, that's very dreamlike yeah um, okay uh, next one is what's your advice to aspiring creatives of all kinds 
Mm. Oh, my advice to aspiring creatives is to, um, oh, is this feeling of how we limit ourselves. It's, it's, it's like, just set the limit aside. There, there's something so intense when you realize that it's your own mind telling you, you can't do stuff, just do it. Uh, you know, I think it's sometimes a matter of just, you know, if you want to draw, yeah, you could sign up and take a drawing class at your local community college or wherever. And, and that's great. Do that too. You could also just get a little pad of paper and a black pen, a red pen, and a blue pen. And every night before you went to bed, you could draw little line drawings. They, they can be so magical. And so I, I, I would say like use I use painting like a journal, use drawing like a, like a, uh, improv group, um, you know, use cooking like a, like a class in, in improv quilting. Like it's all just using these fantastic things that at our, that are at our service, whether it's, um, you know, things to bake with or things to quilt with or colors of paint. And, and I think people get so hung up on the product, you know, they get so hung up on, what does it look like and what will other people say? And I would say, keep it to yourself and just go for it. So that was like four pieces of advice hidden in one sentence. <laughs> ah, that's great. We'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah, totally. We are our own limitation. Yeah, go for it. Get out of your own way and just stop, stop saying, stop saying no. You know, a good friend said to me this summer, that she was just trying to live in such a way that she just said yes to everything that came along. You know, not the, not the bad experiences, but just generally saying yes. Yeah. And I think that's been great um, advice for me this last couple months too. Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot happened. Things get dynamic when you do that. Um, and it's, it's cool, you know, in terms of that advice of turning off the critic in your own mind and then just like drawing as a journal or as a whatever, uh, you know, you just, it, it reminds me of the paintings that you were doing. Those paintings didn't have, like you weren't doing it for the end product. And there's so much art, like art therapy, things like that. Like that's, it's art to, for the sake of art. And it doesn't matter what comes afterwards. And, and it's funny because when you think about things in terms of like you, you know, have a, a death date, then like, would you rather have made a bunch of art and spent your time doing that? Or would you rather spent your time not thinking that you could? Exactly. Like, like when people, people tell me all the time that they can't draw, I'm like you can hold a pencil, right? And you can also sit in front of a piece of paper and you can put that pencil to the paper and move it. Right? That's <laughs> Therefore. Mark making is what you're doing. That's called drawing. So you can technically draw and everything builds from there. You know what I think is so interesting too? Um, my mom saved some of my artwork when I was a kid. Not, not oodles of it, but you know, I don't know, 10 pieces or whatever. So it was so interesting to me at some point to look back at this, these paintings and drawings I made as a child. And then the, the prolific amount of paintings I made in my sort of 20s and 30s. And then the quilts that I started making in my 40s. I swear to you, Taylor, they all look, on some level, they all look the same. <laughs> like they all have some kind of essence of me. And I sew a lot with one other good friend. And her quilts look different than mine. You know, here we are both doing improv kind of things, sewing scraps together and coming up with stuff. 
we select different colors, we select different combinations. And I think that's so cool, this through line of, of who we are coming out in our creativity, whatever the form of that creativity is. Yeah. Okay, well, that sort of lines into the final question, which is what's your definition of art? Oh, interesting. Art with a capital A or art with a small a? <laughs> I sort of think of, I mean, I do think there are, you know, pleasing pieces of art, capital A, that we resonate with. They're either pleasing or they're um, dynamic or they're problematic or they, they you know, they um, pull at us in some way. Um, and these range from, you know, the incredible murals that you do to, you know, Banksy showing up doing stuff in London. I mean, there's just this wide range of what constitutes art on that, that kind of level. And I think to me, it's, it's, it's pieces that have been created that touch us. I also think there's this whole river of kind of creativity that creates incredible amounts of art if you'll let it. I mean, I feel like my whole life is art on some level because it's just this dynamic um, connection with whether you want to call it God or spirit or universe or whatever, like something compels me to do different things on different days. And it's, it's kind of all art, whether it's the art of parenting or the art of sewing or the art of a long bike ride, staring at the trees. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much art. Like, I like the the separation of the capital A art and the small A art, and like there's there's two different wings. But then when you zoom out really far, then they all kind of like overlap and blend together. And then when yeah. you look at the world in different contexts, and they become one and the same or yeah. or different. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think of it almost as like a rainbow or a spectrum or something. You know, there's. There's no difference between your mom and her like gorilla knitting group, knitting stuff on a tree in downtown, you know, Lafayette or something and yeah. sticking up this quirky, fabulous knitting thing. That to me is not that different from the immersive Van Gogh exhibit that I'm going to go to in Denver in a few weeks. You know, yeah. on the one hand, they're wildly different. On the other hand, they're, they're so similar to me. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Oh, art. <laughs> <Shout out to Anne. laughs> yeah nice job mom keep it up uh all right well thanks for being on the podcast diane this thank is, you taylor uh, and everyone who's listening it's just been a pleasure right thank you to all the listeners um but it's really really cool to see what you're doing i i i'm really into it i have i have i mean death is so fascinating and so the effect that it has on life is amazing and and so many people are just not prepared uh, for it or don't have the support that they need through it and it's like a major need in the world and I feel like you're uh filling this need and and like everything you do is gonna be so helpful for people and humanity and the ripple effects of it are so awesome so um it's great yeah. The ripple effects are beautiful. Yeah. Thank you, Taylor, for your ripples. <laughs> yeah. I love rippling. <laughs> um, where can people find you and connect? 
Um, my website is bestlifebestdeath.com. I am on Facebook. I am working on getting on Instagram, but I uh, broke my phone a couple of weeks ago and haven't quite got the business Instagram account up yet. So best place is website or Facebook. Nice. Nice. Cool. Um, all right. Well, that is the end of part one. Uh, before you go uh, and we take a little water break, can you leave us with one more piece of wisdom? And it can be about anything that comes to mind. What's a, a big piece of wisdom that jumps out? I think this idea of noticing how much you are in your own way is probably the biggest piece that's a through line for me. Um, when I notice the ways that I get in my way, and then it's interesting, you know, sometimes we don't want to look at them because we think, oh, if I look at how I get in my way, then it's going to cause more trouble. All it is, is like shedding a light on that and it melts. It, it almost always transforms the minute you look at it. So, you know, looking at how you get in your own way and what roadblocks you're throwing up or what bureaucracy you've thrown up to slow yourself down or keep yourself in a little safe box. I think you might find some interesting things if you get out of your own way. Perfect. Love it. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, Taylor. Definitely. Again. This podcast is brought to you by High Ground Coffee, an adventure coffee brand with a new twist on brewing coffee, wherein you steep coffee like it's a tea. You just drop a packet in hot water and you go. It's the newest way to brew coffee and it's awesome. Use coupon code TAYLOR at checkout for 15% off. Visit them at myadventurecoffee.com. That's myadventurecoffee.com. And we are back. I thought I'd just get going. We're already talking and we'll just like keep it flowing. Um, yeah, we were just talking about art. Imagine that. Um, but let's see. Okay, so we have this little game that we're going to play, which I, I explained to you, Diane. Um, and it is the question or the concepts game. I think I'm going concepts. You're going concepts. Yeah. Okay. Sounds big picture. I'm like, I like big picture. Okay, perfect. So these are the concepts that you can choose from. And these are just jump off points and we'll keep on talking from there. Okay. Um, first concept is transitions. Mm, that fits well. Yeah. Second concept is love. Mm. And the third concept is reincarnation. Oh, concepts for 500, Bob. Wing, 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 wing. <laughs> Okay. And so you can choose one of them or tie in all three of them or do whatever, whatever. I guess really it's just kind of a, a jump off point for whatever. Talk about, talk about those. Yeah. Transitions, love, and. And reincarnation. And reincarnation. Okay. Super. Or you could switch gears and go completely against or away from those and be like, you know, actually I'm going to talk about yeah. that. No, it's great. No, I, I like transitions. I want to, I'm going to focus on transitions, but I'll probably bring the other two in. Cool. Okay. And you want me to just go off? Yep. Well, here's the thing. I, I think that life presents us with incredible opportunities for transitions. 
just all the time, all day, every day, we're transitioning from waking up to being awake, to showering, to breakfast, to however, whatever, however you do your routine, it's filled with transitions. And then if you live with somebody, they arrive, and then that's a transition, getting their energy merged in with your energy for the day. Um, again, whatever your circumstances are. Um, so I think that life as humans on this planet reincarnated into the love we have here. There, I worked the other two in. Um, I think it offers us these transitions. And then I think death is kind of, I think I've heard it called the ultimate transition, right? It is, it is the um, end point transition that we all go through. It's inescapable. We don't know when it's coming and we don't know what's on the other side. So it isn't even quite like the transitions that we hit all day, every day, or at junctures in our lives, like the end of a um, certain amount of schooling or the beginning of a relationship or end of a relationship. It's, it's a transition that we don't know what comes after. Um, and I guess I sort of love my, my life partner, Russ's point of view on this. We were talking maybe a month ago with our teenage girls about, about death because it comes up a lot now because of this work I do. And, um, and he said, well, you know, I look at it this way. Either we die and there's something after, in which case, okay, glad I lived myself, lived my life in a moral, clear way. Or we die and there's nothing after, in which case I'm still glad I lived with a moral, clear compass. <laughs> to, to <laughs> my people. So he just kind of has this great like, eh, doesn't really matter either way. Either way, it's a big transition to we don't know what. And I, I just love that kind of open, um, like he doesn't spend a lot of energy sweating out which it is. He just figures either way, the answer for what to do on this earthly plane in a human body is pretty much the same, which is be good to people, be good to yourself, be good to the planet, you know, do what, do what best you can to make money and get along and have food and do good, whatever that means to you, whatever your path is. So I love that. Um, I think in some ways, one of the most interesting things that's come up for me around reincarnation recently in the last maybe six months was a workshop that I did with a Canadian death doula named Sarah Kerr, K-E-R-R, -R, and I love her work. And the, the workshop that I took with her was about, um, it was about what happens after we die. And it was one model for what happens after we die but she based it on kind of the Joseph Campbell hero's journey, right? With this idea that we are in a known realm and then we descend into an unknown realm. And that idea of the, the hero journey map and that circle and the descent and then back up into the more known place really resonated for me. So I found myself feeling more the connection to people that I'm with in this lifetime feeling like, oh yeah, I might've been with some of them before. I don't know, there's no way to know, but that, that framework has given me kind of an interesting way to, to hold that transition to death without being particularly religious about it or knowing very much about it and feeling sensitive to the co-opting of it, you know, not being a religion of a religion that firmly believes that and understands it. I, I, I have a very lay person understanding of it, but it does, it does touch me. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. There's all these little strange things that we experience in life that 
uh, I feel like bring up questions for all of us uh, that, that sort of have to bring up questions about the nature of reality and extra reality. Yes. Nature and things like that, like, like coincidences or yes. connections with people, like you said, or um, just different elements that are like, wait, what's going on here? And how does that work? And like, um, one of the questions I was going to ask you is about what would you, I'll just say it was, uh, what, what would you call a ghost? Mm. What's your definition of a ghost? Mm, great. That's a great question. I think, I mean, I think I, I believe in ghosts because I, do. I have valid people who have had experiences with spirits. I mean, I might call them spirits more than ghosts, but I think there is something, there is something to be said for this kind of idea that there is clearly this dense body that we live in, but there is also clearly some essence of other that's not there that leaves the body. And I certainly know perfectly rational people who have had experiences of um, that kind of, um, you know, experiences with spirit that they might call ghost. So I, I guess I believe in, I believe in the people who tell me they've had those experiences is what I believe. Um, there's some really interesting TED Talks about this. There's a wonderful um, doctor named Christopher Kerr, same last name as Sarah Kerr, but different Kerr. Dr. Christopher Kerr out of Buffalo has done um, a lot of research on end of life, um, spiritual or mystical experiences and quantified that in a way that um, maybe nobody before him was quite doing it in the same way. And he's got a great Ted talk where he really, he, he absolutely can quantify the fact that people dream about their dead ones that um, towards the end of life, things begin to happen in a mystical realm that are not explainable. Um, and, you know, he says, you know, sometimes the medical field wants to say, oh, they're hallucinating on drugs or, you know, oh, that that didn't make sense. But he said that disrespects their experience. It, this is different than um, an incoherent ramble of a drugged person. This is clear experiences of people visiting and people being in the room and um, people who are dying often having the experience of going on a journey there's often a, a journey metaphor that comes up for people and they'll say, you know, I just need to start packing or they'll say, um, I just want to go home. And, and, you know, when, when loved ones don't know that that can be part of the end of life experience, they sometimes are dismissing it. You know, they say, no, no, mom, you're not going home. You're just going to stay here. That's not really what mom's even talking about anymore. Yeah. You know, mom has, mom is crossing over and, and talking from a more mystical place. So I think it's amazing that these things are far more common than we realize. Also the experience of people um, knowing that someone has died before they've been told someone has died you know, either they have a dream about it or they wake up or they have a, a gasp. I remember one um, anecdote about a woman who um, woke up suddenly in the night with the sound of glass shattering, woke up, looked around, nothing had happened. She found out about, you know, half an hour later that her daughter had been in a car accident. The daughter lived, but the mother knew that that had happened. And it was just, you know, these kinds of things just give me shivers because clearly we're connected in ways you know, it's kind of the idea that like we're using about 2% of our capacity, right? And right. there's so much happening on these other planes simultaneously that it's almost like we just haven't tuned into it. Yeah. 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 And 
every one of those incidences can sort of be explained away in a scientific like well that was this sure. and that blah 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 you know the gravity of the moon and the curvature of the whatever right. made the light refract and then you right. see. But, but no but there's so many experiences that people talk about from all over the world and yes situations that give you the shivers it's very like, universal and the shivers is an interesting thing too because that's sort of like a deep down um like uh i don't know like core base like like your gut gut feelings things like that these are intuitive elements to us and like what it brings to the question of like what uh what level does like intuitive understanding exist on i mean if like you know if there's planes of existence what do the planes look like and obviously there's this one but back to grandma Dottie when she was almost at the end um last couple days mom was hanging out with her in the room it was late one night and she started having these like hallucinations of being at a party she she was was having a party I remember that and like yeah she was she was getting it getting down and it reminds me of like you know if we walk along and we're in this 3d body and this 3d reality we have enough density that we won't fall through the floor but like towards the end of life people sort of like lose their mass they lose their density they shrink like people when they're about to die like a lot of times they just like become like a, this like tiny version of themselves and you're like whoa what like yeah. how did that happen you used to be like so yeah. full and big and then uh and it almost is like they start to sink into like they don't like the floor doesn't catch them anymore and they're like um dissolving to the point where they can like dissolve through <laughs> through the floor through through this yeah. reality into the other ones yeah and ghosts are like ghost stories you know let's say somebody like was in a house and they went upstairs a bunch and then they died like usually in ghost stories it seems like it's often suddenly the sudden yeah. type of death you know yeah. and uh it's almost like the soul of that person maybe didn't have time to like acknowledge what right. even happened and right. then their energy it would like it's almost like it created a static electricity on the stairs like when you rub your feet on carpet right. and like that space was like charged with somebody who's like not fully transitioned because they didn't get the paperwork together because they didn't right. even know right. it happened right right i think that's really really a way a good way of thinking of it the the best book i've read about this kind of realm is called opening heaven's door it's called opening heaven's door by patricia pearson and um she has essentially compiled all the best research on near death experiences and um sort of spiritual crossing overs um that i've seen anywhere and it's it's remarkable. And one of the cool things that she talks about, she talks about quantum physics and some coalition of universities has put together something called, oh, I'm probably not going to get this quite right, but like random event generators mm-hmm. around all over the globe. Mm-hmm. And with things like when 9-11 happened in the US, those random event generators did stuff that they should not have done. But the 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 I think the understanding is that like our collective consciousness all went, wah, you know, and did something. And these little things picked up on it in a way that there's no other explanation for. So there's some super interesting stuff out there to to learn about and read about 
Um, she, she tells amazing anecdotes about people who died and came back and, and how challenging that is for people to then often live with um, because they kind of can't even believe it happened and they don't really necessarily live in a culture that supports them in understanding what happened with their experience. But pretty amazing. I, I think we just hardly know anything about it. Yeah. There are a great, you know, a great number of people of faith who have their beliefs about what happens. And um, again, I, I feel like I how do I know? Let's let's let that be valid too. You know, it's all it's all possible. Yeah, at least hear it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really good book uh, that I read about a lot about the random event generators and okay. uh it's called the field and it's by awesome. a woman named uh, lynn mctaggart and they talked a lot about these sorts of like the, like the energy of the mind and the subconscious and the collective and everything coming together and the way that it works and um, wow and then there's a really great podcast called spooked and it's uh it's like real people telling stories that they've experienced oh fabulous uh, it's so good like some of them some of them are like oh okay the coolest thing about them is that none of them are over the top they're like they're just people telling their stories and they're like it was crazy i was here this happened blah 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 and like i i don't even believe in ghosts really but i don't know what happened that night and like it's uh it's really really that sounds amazing spooked i'm gonna put that on my list yeah yeah they get going uh like every halloween um i think there's been like three or four seasons of it i think one of the things that dr christopher kerr says is he says um or maybe it's patricia pearson in that book one of them talks about how what's amazing is that this is actually so frequent and common and we don't actually know about it that often so when you sit like if you're in a room with 20 people and you start talking about this stories will come out like oh yeah when my mother died she saw her brother who died in world war ii and you know spoke with him and i mean there are all these very specific things that happened for people and people will say she never told that story before you know i had no idea yeah. um and so there's there's things that are kind of inexplicable and yet such shared humanity, but we've kind of lost the common uh, consciousness of talking about them. Yeah. So I think hospice nurses and, um, you know, people who really work with end of life people talk about this, but they don't, they don't necessarily, they don't bring it to every family because not every family wants to hear it. Oh, definitely not. It's like, the, it's the type of stuff that you talk about after dinner with somebody and then after you're sitting by the fire and then after all the other stuff gets talked about right then that's when it comes out it's like but wouldn't it be amazing if we knew that if we knew how common this was i feel like with my mother-in-law who died around the same time as Dottie, her name was donna and she was amazing and died the way she lived very much on her own terms but i think if i knew now if I knew then what I knew now, I would have been more aware of how close to the end she was, because I just think there were signs for about six months that these kinds of mysterious things were happening and she was more open and her eating patterns were shifting. You know, there were signs and we just we didn't know. We didn't know what we were looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Signs of that. Uh, just letting go of the things that are important in yes. this world. And letting go of the body. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
It's so interesting. All this stuff is so wild. <laughs> it's so interesting. Well, and if if how we do one thing is how we do everything, then how do the transitions that we experience a lot in daily life and in bigger junctures of life, how do those transitions, how do we handle those? And therefore, how might we handle our death or our end of life? And also, I think there's a kind of a misconception. Um, one really amazing hospice nurse named Barbara Carnes, who's got a wonderful website, she talks about how she says, I don't like the word dying. She said, we are living and then we're dead. We're not dying. We may be ill with a disease, but like the reason we, you know, die the way we live is because we are alive <laughs> with our personality, doing what we've always done alive until we're dead. Um, and I think that's interesting. And then, of course, dementia and all the kinds of difficult things that can happen with the brain, that impacts all of this, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, there, uh, There's another book that I read called The Immortality Key. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's brand new and it's a dive into psychedelics and uh, its connection with really old religions and it's uh the author is like looking for evidence and putting this case together that potentially uh a lot of like the proto-christian and greek and all these like super old um, religions from ancient times had a psychedelic component to the eucharist and wow. uh with that um what they were trying to achieve was a state of communion with whatever god they god or gods they connected with but in essence what they were doing was was dying before you die and um and so they were you know like you you they get pushed to the other side of things in a psychedelic trip and then they face god and the and their demons and their angels and everything in between and then and then they see that like this is um not all going to last forever and then and then that it, then then they go back to living and they live more like fresh and like in yeah. essence your programs are doing the exact same thing right right incredible and then this whole resurgence of the psychedelic research that's going on i just think is so fascinating and that was another I question back and i think I, yeah i think how could they how could ancient elders not have been using these plant medicines of course they were and how fascinating that we found ways to push them underground for so long and how fascinating that they've reemerged as this huge new piece. And the books I've read are the Michael Pollan books. Yep. And of course, the, the consciousness re research at the end of life is so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Michael Pollan wrote the foreword for The Immortality Key. Nice. And the title. Maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was Graham Hancock. I think. Okay. And the titles of his books are um, How to Change Your Mind. Yes. And, and This the, Is Your Mind on Plants. Yes. Yes. Very interesting. So yes. I think there's really interesting research and also just, you know, experience. I think that's a huge um, burgeoning um, movement. Oh, yeah. And it's a worldwide movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's cool because it really is a it's a way of looking at the end of life and consciousness itself and what it all looks like and means and the shape of things and, and having a completely different experience i mean the the cases that they've worked at the 
that was so incoherent. I'm going to say that again. The, the studies that they've been doing at some of these bigger university hospitals on cancer patients, where you know they give them two doses of psilocybin and the person has a completely different relationship to their death. I mean, this is this is an amazing, amazing for human consciousness. Oh, yeah, yeah. In a psychedelic trip, psilocybin or other or LSD, it's like, and people do that, and then they can kick a smoking habit that they've had for 30 years and tried to quit 10 different times. Um, and I think it, uh, it also, it all ties in with that bigger picture view of, um, you know, if I died in 90 days, what would I want my legacy to be and what would be the most important things. And it just reframes everything for people so that it's like, no, smoking isn't that important. And actually the reason I'm smoking is because I, uh, maybe I feel like a deficit in my life or I, you know, feel like I'm not enough in this way or whatever. And like the trip helps you see that. It seems like it's giving people a real, like a, a reboot, you know, just like a brain reboot. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. And then yeah. I think some other question is how do people use that in such a way that it's lasting, you know, that it isn't a lovely recreational experience. How do you really see that create positive change in your life? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like, uh, well, so I read the the Michael Pollan books, but then also I, I read um, uh, Being Ram Das. That one's awesome. Recommend that to everybody. Yeah. Uh, Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind is like the 30,000 foot view of the psychedelic histories of psilocybin and LSD yeah. and then like the characters involved. And then... Uh, and then Ram Dass's view that book is like going through the jungles <laughs> down in the weeds getting to meet all the characters and like seeing their life and um and Timothy Leary did these studies uh I forget what they were called but there was one that they did in a prison uh where they were like focusing on inmates and doing these psychedelic experiences they fudged numbers so it wasn't like really good science um, and it ended up getting kind of like overturned but the essence was good but then what they and he was trying to say that you could have give people a psychedelic experience and then there would be these lasting effects mm -hmm. but they don't um, they only last for so long and then they like fade away so mm -hmm. but it seems like the way that they're doing it these days is they're integrating right psychology and um you know like working with therapists and then also that and then it like helps you to break new ground and then build foundations on that ground rather than you just like blow things up and then like go yeah. back to normal yeah you know while we're, we're throwing out books and um websites i'll also throw out there's another interesting website called when you die and when you die, you don't know if it's .com or .org off the top of my head, but when you die, um, they're creating a series of documentary films. And the first one is complete and it's really good. And it's about consciousness. And then of course that fantastic fungi movie is such an interesting one about the whole um, psychedelic world and what's happened historically and, and currently. Yeah, and that's on Netflix now. And then I wonder, you know, I wonder too, if this is a part of a transition in human consciousness, like going to that broader transition level. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting that you say that because I was just uh, this thought, this one thing that I have kind of in the back of my mind to talk about with you, um, that's, I've been sort of waiting for the right moment. I think it's here is that, um, so COVID 
hits and especially like last year in like February, March, April, everything was really scary. Nobody knew how it worked, what was going on, how lethal it was, all the things. And we didn't have a vaccine. We didn't even like, everything was like total chaos. We were all shut down. Um, and in that time, mom has, uh, uh, what is it? Breathing? Asthma? asthma. You got asthma. So that's a precondition. Uh, and our underlying condition. And so then it was very scary at times. And we were very, like, I, I was worried about her. We, it, she was very stressed out and like worried about it. And we had this conversation. We, like, she and I connected a lot through that time. And we got to this point where I was thinking and she was thinking, well, I, I think I brought it up to her that like, you might die. And we have to think about that and we have to be okay with it. And then like, accept that as a fact and then move forward from there. And uh, like, how do you want your quality of life to be in this time? And uh, it really brought this whole like facing forward to the problem, to the situation, to the rea reality that like you could die and it could be fast and like, we might not ever get to talk again. And it was really, uh, it was like, you know, it was an intense moment, movement of energy there. And, um, and then I feel like that same experience can be sort of brought to the macro of like, I mean, I've been listening to a lot of stuff and, uh, you know, climate change is something I'm very concerned, or I'm, I'm very concerned with it. I, I think that there's a lot of evidence that shows that like humanity could be on a train that is breaking through all the barriers and heading off a cliff. And we're not putting the brakes on the way that we should be. And so like this sort of like microcosm of us and me and mom, like having the reality check that like you could die and it could be soon. And then like thinking about the macrocosm and like humanity in general, like, like how does the death doula element and like the re reality and like the self-awareness for like the whole human race like how does that come into play and does it or like what what does it all look like mm, big question good question i'm not completely sure i think there are you know signposts that can help us is kind of how i think of it like so one of them for me is another book called The Five Gates of Grief that talks about these different levels of grief. And one of them is the sorrows of the world, right? The sorrows of the world that I sometimes think, are elephants honestly going to be gone in my lifetime? Like, is that really what's happening? Or polar bears? Like, so there's that level. Then there's the grief of um, what we know dying. And that's the people we love and the parts of ourselves. So I think... I think grief and loss are both this huge macro level of what's happening at, a, at a, the biggest levels. And then it's also very specific to ourselves and internal losses and deaths, as well as the people that we love. So I sometimes think about this, this idea of um, David White, the poet has a great phrase. He says, take the next step close in. So the idea is, you do what you can do. You do what is close to you. You be good to the people you live with. You have honesty and integrity in your work. You, you know, you listen to those inner callings that are saying, hey, maybe you should volunteer at 
this place or that place, or, hey, you've always worked well with the elderly. Maybe you want to take more care with your elderly aunt. Whatever is close in that you can do seems to me to be part of the answer to the question of why are we here and what are we doing, right? But I think part of what happened for us in the pandemic is that it became this huge in our face um, moment as a world, as, as humans to look at death um, and how sudden it can be and how um, stunning it can be and how so many of those COVID deaths have so much grief in part because we were not with the people. We, they were taken from people so suddenly and there is such pain in that. So I think for the people who have lived through the pandemic, there is this kind of reckoning moment of how do I want to face this? How do I want to face this if it's me and my mom? How do I want to face this if it's me? How do I want to face this if it's, um, you know, I don't know, a large percentage of people in my community, people that I knew, you know, firefighters, first line responders who get COVID and pass away. And we're all just so stunned by by the impact of this. And then I think there's the uncertainty of what comes next, the sense that the virus continues to mutate, other viruses will show up. This is not our last pandemic. So, so that goes back to that global grief. So I, I don't know, to me, it's like this fascinating, like, um, uh, uh, like condensing and then expanding, contracting and expanding. So I feel the close in and then I feel the the big external. And I go back to something that Michelle Cassu, my painting teacher said years ago, she said, you know, it's easy to love that expanded place where we're holding all of it and we feel love and connection and we're keeping the sorrows of the world in our heart and we're out as big as we can be. And in a funny way, it's easy to love the contracted smaller places. Can you love the transition where the whole thing keeps moving in and out? So that's kind of mixing multiple metaphors, but I think there's something about appreciating the transitions and holding the bigger and smaller spaces and taking the steps close in that we can take. Yeah, big balancing act. I mean, I guess it's just the path of being human. Yeah. I don't know what we thought it was, but maybe we thought it was something different, you know, before the pandemic or when we were younger or, you know, before some of this exploration, but here we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a like self-awareness of uh, humans and humanity and then also the inner world and our inner workings as an individual. And it's a trip. <laughs> <laughs> A wild time to be alive and long strange trip i believe one of your mom's favorite bands used to say right. sure did. <laughs> what long strange trip it's been <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting the like the the grief on a mass scale and like what one thing you said earlier about art capital a art is that if society were to break down as we know it end of world sort of thing like it really puts capital a art into like the trash can which is so strange it's like and all like society and humans and like our whole run and like everything i mean 
almost like did it matter like does it fucking matter at this point (laughs) like it's it's so weird and then like having that sort of a thought like in my mind in my world in my art and all these things is like doing it is one is one thing that's like challenging on its own but then doing it with the thought of like does this even matter in the long run or anything is like a whole different like kind of twist into things and but of course it matters and like go ahead I do think it matters because it's that next close, it's that close in step, right? It's that, it's that um, expansion of the human heart and the human consciousness to make something, to make something new. Right. And it's new, whether it's somebody with a small pencil and a line drawing or something that a great artist is doing or something in between, it's, it's something new. And that seems like what humans are most capable of at our, like at our best, we, we create, like, I think it's like the apex of humanity on some level, but we also create messes and we create chaos and we create, we created a lot of us and we created unsustainable things, you know? Um, But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, that there weren't this many of us and that death was really close in and that, you know, people had less time for creating because they were surviving. But here we are at this different juncture where there's time to create. And I don't know. I like to think that art, capital A and small a, both have ripple effects that um, have an impact on how people live and die. And so it is important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. I tend, I also should, I should say a caveat that I don't, I find myself when I go to that place, that's like the really big griefs, I, I get a little paralyzed, you know, and I don't know if it's disassociation or fear or whatever, but I just think, well, let me come back to what I can do. You know, let me come back to this little human in this particular body, in this particular place. And what can I do? Yeah. And, and, and what I can do in part is support people who are doing all kinds of things at different levels, you know, whether I support them emotionally or, you know, with donations or something, but I can, I can offer support to people working on things I care about that impact bigger things that I myself am not tackling. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's justification. I don't know. I haven't figured figured it out. We can't be giant activists, you know? No. No, and but you also don't want to be paralyzed, and there's really nothing you can do in that position once you're paralyzed. And I, the only other thing to do is to get unstuck and start doing things that are small. Like that's right. that's all you can really do, and then right. uh, move forward accordingly. <laughs> yeah, I I felt almost a little guilty because on some level the pandemic was pretty kind to us. You know, my mm-hmm. husband and I just kind of retrenched. There were four of us living in our house. So we had a lot of interactions. We got a third dog, you know, total privilege. Yep. And um, we, you know, we did okay. We, we stayed really intact emotionally and financially and not, not everybody had that, had that privilege to do so, but out of it kind of came this, um, uh, you know, this egg that hatched of this 
new business and this this new moving forward with something that I think has real real potential to touch people. I you know I always um, send something to my classes. I, as I mentioned, I, I give them their death date of 90, you know, 90 days out from the first day of class. It's always a little shocking to people when I say the date, you know, they're like, I can't believe she said a date. Wow. It's kind of creepy or kind of amazing or kind of scary or whatever. But I always contact the people in the class on that date. You know, I send a little poem or a little something. And it is really interesting how many people write me back and say, you know, the course had a big impact on me and I can't believe it's August 10th you know, that was going to be my day. And I feel lucky that I have more than that. And I got some things done because of that deadline. Like it made them think about it in a different way. Yeah, I think it's so powerful. And I think it, it's uh, potentially like world changing. I mean, if, if everybody thought about these things all the time uh, and like got their everything in order, then I think a lot of stuff that is sort of just inconsequential and maybe has negative effects overall uh would sort of fall away a little bit more um granted i mean you know again i'm talking from a very uh privileged space um <laughs> i, I want to throw that disclaimer out to everybody listening is that i i'm all these conversations are coming from that privileged space that i'm lucky to have um and there's but there's that so yeah. It's interesting, uh, this conversation, because just in the last like five minutes, I felt myself uh, like going into these thoughts that I've been having after listening to this podcast about climate change and then hearing a lot of stuff on the news about different things. And it's like, uh, I like part of me wants to dive into it and really explore it. And then there's also this part of me that's like, hosting this podcast and almost wants to like keep things on like a positive or like optimistic tone or level but then at, and that's and I've talked about it on the podcast before I'm naturally a people pleaser um, that I've had to become aware of that trait in me and it's not always like to a healthy point and it's funny because there's this like people pleasing element coming out because we're talking about like death on the micro and then death on the macro and it's really confronting and yeah like the levels of uh of just people's psyches that you're like holding their hand through is just fascinating yeah what's also interesting is is i would say that in every course i've taught in every best three months course i've taught there's been somebody in the course who really is on the verge of dying. Like they have a difficult diagnosis. Maybe they have a year, maybe they have a few months, but they, they, they know that they are actually dying. And most of the rest of the people in the class, maybe they've been through a cancer scare, but they're on the other side, or they've been healthy for 60 years or whatever it is. But that level of somebody having a clear, um, more of a clear endpoint than the rest of people adds this like depth to the class that's really powerful and people I can't tell you what it is to you know how touching it is to be in a group where everybody realizes that this is less theoretical for some people in the group and and yet the gift of that person and their end of life to the group is this awareness of mortality that is pretty motivating 
you know? And so, so I would say that's been an interesting thing that sometimes when I talk about the work I do, people think it's me working with someone at the end of their life exclusively, but it's really not. It's mostly people, I've had people as young as it, in their 20s and also 30s and 40s, more 50s, 60s, 70s, one woman in her late 80s, another woman in her early 80s. So, you know, kind of that whole range of age, but clustered around people, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, who are kind of saying, okay, I'm retired from work and I'm really looking at this and I want my things to be in order. So definitely for the healthy, but ultimately dying people, but also for people who are um, looking for something that's a little bit different than what they might be getting out of a different support group. So for example, one woman was in treatment for cancer and she said, you know, my cancer support group, I get a lot out of that because we talk about what we're trying and what we're doing and kind of um, successful management of, of symptoms and stuff. But she said, but this group is focused on what do I want to leave? No matter when my time is, what do I want to have left? And she said that that matters a lot to me. Yeah. So that was that's kind of cool to see that there are different things that people need. I want to do the course. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to have you. Sweet. <laughs> Sweet. A question just came up. Do you, uh, do you cry? Please? I do. I do. Um, I, I mean, I try not to like break out in a full sob, but I definitely get teary. I mean, people tell such moving stories and there's one video that I always show that makes me laugh and cry every time I see it. It's just, I've probably seen it 10 times. And every time I see it, I get choked up. It's such an amazing, it's a, um, I'll say what it is. It's a moth storytelling by Elizabeth Gilbert. Oh, yeah. Author of Eat, Pray, Love. And she does a moth storytelling time of her partner's passing that is just like stunning. It's just stunning. Wow. How she tells it and what she tells. I just, I get, I tear up thinking about it. Yeah. So I cry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I also laugh. I mean, I, I think that's a piece of this too. I, I'm, and that's just sort of who I am. Like I hold this all with a, you know, appropriate decorum, but I also have a sense of humor and funny stuff happens. You know, people have funny stories to tell about things that have happened or things they've seen or, you know, stuff that people said. I mean, just a, just a funny example is my mom sent me a little clipping from the New Yorker that said, um, oh, you know, she said, be sure and tell people in your classes about the seagull syndrome. And that's when someone is at their end of life and then somebody flies in from out of state and swoops in and shits all over everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that, right? Because like, I didn't know that had a name, you know, seagull syndrome. Yeah. But, um, but that often happens that someone comes in and is a big disruptor to the kind of what's happening and they don't just sort of get on board with what's happening. They're a big, we've got to do this. We've got to save dad. And dad has said, I don't want any more treatment. Yeah. 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 So I love that. So there's a lot of humor in all this too. And a lot of, um, I don't know, a way to kind of hold it lightly because, you know, if ultimately the point is to shed some baggage, to clean up some messes so that everything's a little cleaner when you pass, whenever that is, that's, oof, that's yeah. juicy. Yeah. Cause if you don't do that, then the baggage is all still there. And then yeah. it's going to be that much more to carry. Well, Diane, this has been great. Taylor, this is so much fun. <laughs> <laughs>
Glad you like it. I have a blast doing this. <laughs> it's so cool. I can't wait to see how the sort of how it all comes together. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really fun because I love having these conversations and uh, yeah. it's like a way to prompt them and then record them for all of history. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's real. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's such an interesting field and that kind of anybody can do it. You jump on anchor and yeah. podcast away. That's right. <laughs> exactly do it anchor <laughs> good good a uh, good commercial there we'll plug for anchor yeah that's we'll great plug for all these great books we've said too wow just so oh, yeah. the I, a lot of things and i can add some but some of these are on my website so you know the best life best death website has a resource section it's also a frequently asked questions section Ooh, i'll tell your listeners that if you go to my website and go to the last frequently asked question there's a pot up uh, there's a video blooper nice nice all right cool <laughs> i like it i have to make a few more of those although that one that one i couldn't recreate if i tried <laughs> nice <laughs> cool all right well anything else i think that's it thank you for your time thank you hang out for just one second so that was my conversation with Diane Hullett. So cool. So cool to have her on the show because I've known her for so long, as we mentioned. Um, yeah, it's really cool to see people kind of reinvent themselves in new ways. I mean, Diane's always been awesome and uh, she's always had a lot of depth and wisdom. And then to have it aimed and focused through this lens think is is just really awesome to see and I think it's going to be a really powerful create powerful ripples in the world as we were saying um yeah what an interesting conversation what uh, it's wild how this interview about death and dying and then you know the education of people uh through that process it even like brought up like challenging places for me to talk about just in the podcast about the thing. Um, so it can definitely be said that the thing itself is uh, so much more intense and powerful and beautiful and all this stuff. Like it's, it's uh, the process of life that everybody goes through. <laughs> it's powerful stuff. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on it? What do you think about death and dying? What are your perspectives? What do you think about ghosts? Huh? You believe in ghosts? And on what level do you believe or not believe? Interesting stuff. Anyway, I hope that this conversation, this thought of uh, like the 90 day death day, dying before you die, all that stuff. I hope that it has a positive effect on your life, your creativity, your art, uh, everything else too relationships and that uh yeah i hope this is a good one for you cheers <laughs>